Hey everybody, this is Volts for June 8th, 2022. Volts Podcast, Dr. Ye Tao on a grand scheme to cool the earth. I'm your host, David Roberts. Geoengineering, using large-scale engineering projects to directly cool the earth's atmosphere, is an intensely controversial topic in climate circles. On one hand, such schemes strike many people as dangerous hubris, interfering with large-scale systems we don't fully understand, risking catastrophic unintended consequences. On the other hand, there is good reason to believe that even a wildly successful program of decarbonization will not be enough to avoid devastating levels of heat in the atmosphere. Dr. Ye Tao was early in his career as a researcher at Harvard's Roland Institute working on nanotechnology when he became gripped by the problem of climate change. As he dug into the research, he concluded that even rapid decarbonization, especially insofar as it reduces the aerosol pollution that temporarily cools the atmosphere, would leave the Earth roasting in levels of heat hostile to most life forms. As he reviewed available options for carbon capture and geoengineering, he realized that none of them were safe or scalable enough to do the necessary cooling work in time. So he came up with a technique of his own, mirrors. The MIR project, Mirrors for Earth's Energy Rebalancing, is a nonprofit established to advance Tao's vision, which involves covering some mix of land and ocean with fields of mirrors. The mirrors would reflect solar radiation, and thus heat, back up out of the atmosphere. If 10-15% to 15% of developed agricultural land could be covered with mirrors, Tao has calculated, it would return Earth's heat to safe pre-industrial levels, providing a range of local benefits to agriculture and water in the meantime. It is a brash idea, somewhere between crazy and obvious, and I was excited to hear more from Tao about why he thinks it's necessary, how it would work, the materials that would be required, and how the MIR framework changes the way we view carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. All right, Ye Tao, uh, welcome to Volts. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for inviting. Yeah, I have to confess, when I first <laughs> invited you on the pod, I had not yet really done a deep dive into into the mirror project and i was just sort of thinking oh a bunch of mirrors how novel that sounds fun let's talk about that but i've I've spent a while now digging in and listening to more of your presentations and reading more and there's really a lot going on here (laughs) there's a lot going on here the mirrors are at the end of a sort of chain of reasoning that in many many ways contradicts conventional wisdom about climate change so I, w- I do want to get to the mirrors. I'm excited to talk about the mirrors, but let's do a little background building first. So I want to start with, it seems like the key to understanding your whole framework here is the distinction between CO2 and heat. We sort of conflate carbon and heat. When we talk about climate change, what's the problem? It's more carbon. Carbon causes heat. How do we reduce the heat? We reduce the carbon dioxide emissions. We sort of have those coupled in our mind, and you say it's important to decouple them. So talk a little bit about why we need to keep them conceptually distinct and then also decouple them in terms of, you know, the physics of the system. 
Okay, yeah, uh, that's a good place to start. Uh, it's true that uh, uh, we uh, created this problem by emitting CO2, and it's important to shut it down as quickly as we can uh, uh, manage practically. And uh, in the Earth system, everything is basically linked. So it's only natural that when you perturb one important component to a very significant extent, such as CO2 concentrations, mm -hmm. you should expect some downstream consequences. And the most urgent of which is uh, overheating of the planet. And heat is really the driver of uh, weather patterns and precipitation patterns. So when you have excess thermal energy, that's really different from the state Earth was before the CO2 perturbation, that you can expect uh, downstream extreme uh, events and also perturbation to uh, the biochemical cycle. And if we look at the responses of different organisms and plants, insects and mammals, and how they respond to individual perturbations in CO2 versus temperature, universally, they really suffer when temperature gets ramped up to uh, a few degrees above their normal temperature niche uh, values. Uh, but in terms of CO2, essentially most species, like 90% plus or more, are actually not perturbed really by the current increase in CO2 levels. Mm -hmm. So basically, uh, you know, we uh, initiate this avalanche by burning CO2, but the real environmental stressor that's really creating havoc are a combination of overheating and the resulting drying of land and, and you know, moisture. So what we talk about as the effects of climate change are the effects of heat, basically, are, are heat playing its way through the system. Yeah. And is it safe to say then that, that we care about CO2 in the atmosphere more or less only as it relates to heat, only insofar as it brings more heat, right? Because in and of itself, as you say, it's not a, I mean, I'm sure there's some level of concentration that's dangerous, but the levels of concentration we're talking about are not dangerous in and of themselves. Is that fair? Well, we'd have to be a little bit more careful uh, and include a timeline. I would say like in the near future, next 50 years, assuming that we're emitting and growing economy on current trajectory, then the predominant parameter is heat. That's going to basically shut everything down before we're able to continue. But if we were somehow we're able to manage to prolong this fossil fuel economy, then by the 2070s, 80s, Ocean acidification would then also become a potentially dangerous environmental stressor for marine ecosystems. But the logic is that uh, it's very highly unlikely for society or civilization to really survive to that point on our current emission trajectory. <laughs> Therefore, we really need to focus on you know, both decarbonizing safely and also dealing with heat. So I mentioned that uh, we initially uh, started this heating process by turning up CO2. And that uh, there are many parameters in the Earth system are interlinked. Mm. Uh, but it's uh, logically uh, just not correct to say that the best way is to use this single CO2 knob to address the heat or moisture. There are other knobs that are higher leverage, essentially for the same input in resources, energy and time. And we're you know, stressed on all those fronts. There's much better ways to address the most imminent danger of environmental overheating than looking at conventional CO2 or methane mitigation. Right. So CO2 is the knob that turned heat up, but it's not necessarily the only knob that we have. <laughs> or, or most efficient knob for turning it down. And you, and you go beyond that to say that even if we switched to 100% renewable energy tomorrow, you think we would still pass heat thresholds that would be devastating. Explain that a little bit. Yeah, so uh, currently, uh, 
Earth is uh, on a heating trajectory. And uh, when something is heating, that's because there's more thermal power or more heat that's been put into the system than is coming out. So let's say somehow we could uh, selectively just shut down uh, emission of greenhouse gases while somehow maintaining economy going. The Earth will continue to heat. The reason is if you make a measurement of how much sunlight is coming in and how much IR radiation is going out, currently there is a... 1.5 watt per meter squared of power net energy input into the Earth system. So essentially, the past emission debt, even in the current state, has not been fully paid. Mm. So uh, the Earth will continue to heat up even if we were to shut down. And I need to explain a little bit uh, what this 1.5 watt per meter squared means. So watt is a unit of power, basically how much energy gets passed through per unit of time. And uh, per meter squared, it's uh, an average value that scientists, climate scientists, uh, like to use to uh, get some common metric. So basically, uh, you have a LED at every square meter of land surface on Earth. That's currently how much heat is coming in continuously. So to translate this power into an eventual equilibrium temperature, we have to multiply by a factor that converts this weird unit to a degree unit. And that factor has a value that's roughly one. So it's very convenient. So for every watt per meter squared of uh, uh, radiated forcing or this uh, heating power per square area, we can expect at equilibrium a temperature increase of about one degrees. So therefore, we should expect another 1.5 degrees of temperature increase at equilibrium if we were to just shut down further damage at this point. So that's uh, point number one. But this 1.5 degrees well, not realize instantaneously, it's going to take uh, some time, years, decades, to centuries to realize. And there's different components, different uh, part of this 1.5 will manifest itself over different length scales. Mm-hmm. But overall, it's uh, we're looking at order one degree increase. So that's uh, assuming that we could somehow selectively shut down uh, CO2 emissions. But when we burn fossil fuel, there are other pollutants that's uh, co-emitted, which includes these uh, aerosols. I love this. I've been waiting for someone to say something. I've had this question idly in my mind for a long time, and I was so glad that you answered it in your presentation. And it's such a fascinating irony, I guess you'd call it, or or paradox or something. And I'm glad to have it measured. So I just want to put a pin in this. So you say if we, you know, we're burning coal, we're sort of steadily burning coal. And part of what that is doing is putting aerosol pollution in the air, mm-hmm. which is blocking some of that solar radiation. Mm-hmm. So to some extent, offsetting the heating of the atmosphere. And if we stopped burning coal, those aerosols fall out of the air quickly, Mm -hmm. unlike CO2. They quickly fall out. So whatever heating they were blocking would very rapidly make its way in. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I want to ask is, would that more than offset whatever reduction in heat you get from the reduction of CO2? Uh, That's an excellent question. And Let's go into a, a little bit of semi-quantitative uh, detail. So I previously mentioned that uh, even overlooking this temporary cooling effect, the Earth is currently experiencing a heating power density of 1.5 watt per meter squared. So this quantity is called the Earth's energy imbalance, basically how much uh, you know, surplus heat we're getting right now. And this value had been fluctuating around 0.7 to maybe one watt per meter squared in most of the past uh, you know, 10, 20 years, except for uh, more recently in the recent uh, a few years. 
it really went up to maybe 1.3, 1.5, even like last year, based on the most recent measurement. So I won't speculate on why recently there has been an increase in this uh, heating power. Okay, let's leave that Earth's energy imbalance uh, aside for a moment and address how much additional heating is currently masked by these aerosols. Mm -hmm. So uh, the latest IPCC, if you really delved into uh, the technical parts, they put the number at about 1.2, 1.3 watt per meter squared. So uh, it's an important number to remember, 1.2 to 1.3. So essentially, let's now assume that in addition to shutting down the CO2, we also shut down all the aerosol emissions, which comes naturally anyways. We would then induce a Earth's energy imbalance, which is no longer a 1 or 1.5, but that number plus 1.2 to 1.3, which brings the total energy imbalance to most likely around 2 watt per meter squared or somewhere uh, slightly above that. And if we, we then translate this heating power to an equilibrium temperature increase, it will be like more like 2 degrees Celsius. And that's on the time scale of the aerosols going away? Like what, by when? Okay. So uh, the fraction that will be added when aerosols fall out, the 1.2, 1.3 watt per meter squared, that fraction, half of that, would be realized very quickly within a couple of years. Mm -hmm. So recently I gave a presentation summarizing uh, a dozen peer-reviewed papers that came out uh, since the first batch of COVID lockdowns. So COVID, despite all the inconvenience it, you know, uh, it created and all the havoc it created, uh, offered climate science a rare opportunity to really assess and confirm this uh, warming that's hidden by aerosols. Right, because we stopped emitting them pretty abruptly. That's right. And we know exactly when the measures or uh, rules were put in place. So it's a sort of very controlled experiment. Right. And uh, there's a lot of... Uh, most paper, I think all the paper, experimental measurements confirm that, say, in the area of East Asia or China, there was temperature increase over land of about 0.5 degrees, uh, just over the very short weeks to month of the 2020 lockdowns. Right. That wasn't even a year, right? That was a matter of months and there was an immediate rise in heat in the area. Yes. So when we talk, uh, talk about this uh, global average temperature increase, you have to average over the oceans and land. But of course, uh, the primary driver in that process will be land because it's the one with the lowest heat capacity. So, And that's the component that also responds most instantaneously to an increase ramping up in heating power. And uh, then this land temperature increase will then drive atmospheric circulation patterns which bring uh, the warm air to the oceans and also bring the oceans up to temperature. So it's uh, to be expected that the fastest response component is uh, land surface temperature. Right. So where does that leave us by 2050? Say we, um, you know, switch to renewables tomorrow and just had the sort of legacy 1.5 yeah. <laughs> per watt square meter and then the additional 1.2 that we would get from dropping aerosols out mm -hmm. what temperature global average temperature does that put us at okay. in say 2050 yeah thank you for bringing uh, me back to answering this question <laughs> so but uh now let's remember that uh, the aerosols are masking uh 1.3 watt per meter squared so essentially uh as we decarbonize we'll uh, lose that component and now uh, let's just remind ourselves of uh, how much our annual emissions is adding to this uh, heating power. Uh, so I'm quoting uh, some presentations. I have to track down the source, but our annual uh, CO2 emissions 
at about 0.06 watt per meter squared uh, of heating power. Mm. So over 20 years, 0.06 times 20 gives you roughly about 1.2 watt per meter squared, which is just that happens to be comparable to uh, how much aerosols are masking. So in a very simple model of decarbonization, linear decarbonization from now until 2040 something, we would have uh, avoided creating 1.2 watt of, uh, per meter squared of heating. But at the same time, we would have uh, unveiled or unmasked about 1.2. Right. So the two uh, at this point just magically happens to balance out, <laughs> which uh, allows us to have very high confidence of the heating trajectory of uh, the Earth system from now until 2040, 2050s. So the two degree mark will most certainly be surpassed uh, in that decade. Uh, and uh, that will happen regardless of uh, what we do on the emissions front because of this uh, coincidence of uh, the annual heating contributed by current emissions and how much is currently masked You know, if we uh, continue to, to have these emissions. You never gave me a temperature <laughs> for 2050. Is three possible? Uh, I, 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 in my personal opinion, I think that uh, will be quite difficult to, to reach due to the thermal lag and uh, things in the system. Like for such a gigantic system, uh, things move slowly. And uh, if you just look at, disregard all the underlying mechanisms, just look at uh, the temperature versus time data. Uh, you know, the, the slope of that changes very slowly. So there's uh, polynomial projections generally work, tend to work pretty well for these massive systems. But the point is, we are definitely going to pass the threshold we have deemed uh, safe, I guess. I don't, is that the two th threshold anymore? Yes, I don't, I don't know if safe is the, is the right way to describe under that, but over it, uh, certainly unsafe. Uh, yes, yeah, so we have functionally passed the, the two degrees threshold that's uh, touted as being safe. And, uh, you know, because of this uh, predictable trajectory, and also most people have no understanding of the underlying dynamics and maybe just assume that temperature is proportional to current emissions, then it perhaps enables some very few policymakers who may have a scientific understanding to really perpetuate this uh, essentially lie to the public that we can somehow get temp temperature under control just based on conventional mitigation. It's not really the case. Okay, so this brings us around to we need to deal with heat in some more direct, faster way than via CO2. <laughs> Certainly than via CO2, uh, you know, reduction in emissions. Mm -hmm. So uh, one obvious question is, what about CO2 removal? What about direct air capture of CO2? Mm -hmm. uh, this is the, um, sure you're aware, very hot right now. Yes. Do you think that could accelerate the drawdown of CO2 fast enough to uh, counter this rise in heat? Um, uh, no. <laughs> so <laughs> before we really start to look at any particular solution, I think we need to really dive and find the core of the, the challenge, the core of the problem. So uh, the problem is uh, energy imbalance of the Earth system, meaning there's net power, net heating power coming into our home planet. And we need to be quantitative because this is a, a, you know, a very uh, important problem. So quantitatively, the heating power that's heating Earth is roughly a thousand terawatts. Uh, a terawatt is 10 to the 12 watts, which is a 1,000 billion. So we have roughly 1 million billion watts heating the Earth system, a thousand terawatts. 
Okay, now we're uh, humans and we think we can, you know, modify our environment. But uh, to do any modification, we need to use our machinery, our technology. And our machinery and technologies are powered by energy. Mm-hmm. So let's see how much energy we have available. The whole of humanity in 2020 uh, was using a power of 18 terawatts. Okay, so the problem of overheating is 1,000 terawatts, and we have 18 terawatts of mostly fossil fuel combustion heat to deal with the problem. What does that mean? That means we need to have a cooling system that's 1,000 over 18 times 100% efficient, which is uh, roughly 10,000% efficient. (laughs) So just uh, to put things in perspective, for uh, an air conditioning that most people are uh, familiar with, for every unit of uh, electrical energy you feed it, it can move about three or four units of heat from one side of the wall to the other side of the wall. So it's only uh, a coefficient of performance of three or four. But here, to move heat from inside the, uh, the biosphere, the atmosphere outside into space, we need a coefficient of performance of uh, you know, water uh, 100. So that's drastically more efficient than um, just any typical technology that we are aware of. Mm-hmm. So where does that leave us? So that uh, basically means in order to have a chance of stopping global warming, the particular process that you invent needs to have a minimum theoretical uh, efficiency that's much, much larger than uh, 100. Why is that? Because it's not possible to use all of our energy to just tackle climate change because most of the energy goes into also feeding the population mm. right, and keeping us warm. So then the question is, oh, this is an unsolved question, and I think it's, uh, we're starting just to discuss answers to this question, which is, so realistically, what fraction or percentage of the 18 terawatts is humanity able to devote to tackle something like uh, climate change? So there is no answer to that that I'm aware of, and uh, leading thinkers in these fields have not really been alerted to the importance of finding that number because uh, the mere framework ha- is not widely known yet. That wouldn't be a physical limit, though, would it? I mean, the limits on how much of our energy we're willing to devote to that is not... Uh, well... That'll be a social constraint, won't it? To a certain extent, uh, with the assumption that somehow social opinions and the uh, societal trajectory could be arbitrarily uh, curved. But uh, there are underlying mechanisms that we are simply not aware of or we don't fully understand. And there are also physical limits to uh, how much fossil fuel extraction, let's say if that's the power that used to solve this problem, and how quickly we can build uh, solar panels. There are some kinetic barriers to uh, how much we really can. But that's, a, of course, these uh, things are uh, needs to be investigated in the process of finding how much energy really we're able to uh, devote to this process. But just uh, as an analogy, uh, people have calculated uh, what fraction of current power needs to be devoted to renewable infrastructures to you know, fully decarbonize and become uh, running mostly on renewables by, say, 2050. Mm-hmm. And that figure falls between, say, 0.5 to maybe 5% of current total energy consumption. But uh, even that you know, single-digit percent investment seems to be difficult at this point. (laughs) And uh, most of the world is not aware of uh, this uh, Earth energy imbalancing problem that will guarantee global warming yet. So it's not even in discussion. So we would be very, very optimistic in thinking that somehow we could manage to put, say, 5% uh, of uh, 
our energy consumption to tackle this heat problem or global warming at its core. Mm-hmm. So that corresponds to uh, you know roughly uh, one terawatt of power out of eighteen terawatt. And if that's the case, we need uh, what we call a heat rejected on investment or cooling <laughs> return on investment. We need this ratio to be a couple thousand. 1,000 or 2,000. Right. How do you get the most heat out of the system yeah. per... Per unit input in energy and the materials, yes. Per energy expended. But it's uh, easy to measure things. Well, well, it's possible to convert things at least to the energy base uh, on first inspection right. before you even consider the material analysis. So we can apply this uh, framework or this uh, minimal requirement criterion to analyze, say, the likes of carbon um, capture, direct air capture. And one finds that such methods are short of what's required by uh, an order of magnitude or more, which basically means if we were to invest all of our uh, energy consumption, 18 terawatts, into um, the process, we uh, would barely really just manage to um, capture contemporaneous or contemporary emissions. Mm. And it's obviously not possible. So it's essentially industry that's created that can turn a profit on small scale, but uh, its capacity is only capable of, uh, in the very optimistic sense, address its own emissions in running the process and creating all the sorbents and all the factories that's needed to, to make it run. So it's a, it's a very ideal exemplification of uh, capitalism, basically creating a need out of nothing and uh, <laughs> asking consumers to pay for it and branding it in dishonest ways. Okay, we got to get to the mirrors eventually. So I want to cross a, a few other things off the list. This is our this is our framework. We have a X amount of energy available to tackle this problem, and the way we need to approach it is: how do we get as much heat out of the system as possible per unit of energy we expend? What about these other geoengineering ideas? Like what about sulfur particles in the atmosphere, or cloud seeding, or kelp? Have you have you gone through uh, the geoengineering catalog and, and and tried to figure out what can and can't reject the most heat? Uh, yes, we we have uh, basically uh, done a more or less comprehensive analysis of all the proposals out there, and I'm also part of uh, several discussion uh, groups online that uh, you know the members of which are basically leaders and uh, principal investigators in different uh, startups and companies and or nonprofits. Uh, each uh, fostering uh, different techniques and approaches. Uh, for example, Stephen Salter is a professor, a retired professor uh, from the University of Edinburgh that I visited actually in person and studied with him for two days to really understand the latest uh, thinking and design for marine cloud branding. So I can say that I have a pretty comprehensive understanding of the limitations and the capabilities of uh, different ap- approaches. So uh, you asked about uh, solar radiation management, and uh, the only two that's currently been talked about include uh, stratospheric aerosol injection and uh, this uh, marine cloud brightening. This aerosol injection, which let me just interrupt briefly, the aerosol injection, which would ironically be furiously attempting to replace the aerosols that are falling out of the atmosphere as we're reducing coal uh, burning. Yes, it's an attempt to perform something similar, but there's uh, important distinctions. So the aerosol that we create from coal burning, they don't go very high up in the sky Mm. because uh, they're sourced uh, at the ground and they're transported by atmospheric circulations in the troposphere. So 
troposphere is the lower part of the atmosphere uh, up to a height of about uh, 10 kilometers, some, so roughly 10 miles in some cases, and thinner on the poles, but it's roughly you know, flight altitude, cruising flight altitude. And uh, much above that, it's called the stratosphere. So the two layers don't really mix very well, uh, which means when you inject particles in the lower part, they fall up much uh, easier, so they're less stable. But if you put things uh, up high in the stratosphere, they stay up much longer uh, on the order of a, a couple of years, maybe sometimes more. So the, the one of the thinking about why inject into the stratosphere is because it makes the particles more uh, stable, which means you don't have to inject all day, every day, 24-7, right. because uh, the next rainstorm or uh, precipitation events would have uh, wiped out all your reflectors. <laughs> so that's why people are thinking about putting them up in the stratosphere. The problem is that we do not have a full understanding of the chemistry or uh, physical transport or nucleation, cloud nucleation properties of the different uh, particles that are being proposed. We do know that um, sulfuric acid uh, nanoparticles or droplets will contribute to ozone depletion. So that's one known uh, risk. Uh, what's not really been studied uh, fully is when these particles eventually fall out. So the way they fall out is they get injected, say, in the tropical latitudes, and they get transported by stratospheric uh, circulation to the poles, and they ring out over the poles. So uh, when they ring out over the poles, they could potentially seed clouds over the poles. Mm. So if it's the, the summer, polar summer, then great. Uh, they're promoting some cloud formation, so shielding part of the polar uh, water from being uh, heated up by sunlight. But because the residence time is over a couple of years, so they will also potentially fall out during the winter. And when they do see the cloud during the winter, it's like uh, the cloud acts as a blanket. So they prevent uh, freezing. They could potentially prevent freezing of the Arctic during the winter. Mm. So uh, clouds, you can conceptualize that basically as a barrier for energy passage. So which way it's uh, impeding the flux of energy depends on uh, the net uh, uh, vector or where the, the flux is going. So in the summer, there's more coming down, so they have a cooling effect. In the winter, there's more uh, energy going out by radiation than they would have a keeping warm, warming effect. And uh, since we do not have uh, the microphysical understanding fully of a cold formation over the Arctic in the event of a large quantity of aerosols raining down there, we do not really actually know the sign of the impact, local impact in the Arctic. So, and that's, I think, uh, a specific version of a more general point, which you said before, which is just we don't understand the risks of these things well enough to be doing them. So this is why what's sort of sponsored your search for a simpler, more direct version of geoengineering, which brings us to the mirrors. <laughs> so yeah. so your, your proposal, you know, to put it as simply as possible, is to cover a decent swath of the Earth's surface with mirrors. Mm -hmm. And the mirrors will reflect solar radiation back out into space. And with sufficient mirrors, we could reject enough heat to bring the global average temperature down into a safe range, even if CO2 remains high and even rising. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair summary? Yes, the idea for using uh, mirrors, which is a local light management or reflector device, it's very important because these challenges are interconnected. You know, shortage in food that's coming down the line and the droughts 
and local communities are the one that's bearing the brunt of the impact. If we can, you know, not only tackle the global problem, but primarily have a very strong local impact, then it's a, a process that can be tested on small scale and that can be potentially implemented out of the volition of uh, the local population and communities and in a naturally, organically democratic way in its uh, testing. Let's talk about then what would, I mean, obviously the global effect of reducing global average temperatures is to everyone's benefit, but what would be the local effects that you could sell a local population on of creating big fields of mirrors? Okay, so... We have uh, preliminary data from uh, uh, the summer season of 2021 to uh, put some numbers on expected impacts. So uh, in our very small mirror field in uh, New Hampshire, um, Plymouth, uh, New Hampshire, during the month of July, which was happened to be very wet, despite you know high soil uh, moisture during the measurement period, we could measure up to 10 degree Celsius temperature reduction in the regions uh, underneath a single mirror that's as small as two by two feet. If you're talking two by two, the directly shaded area is going to move around all day. So it it reduces temperature in the whole area of soil? Uh, that's right. So it's, uh, so the, the shade, as you mentioned, it's, uh, it's a, a swipes over a region right. which is on the order of five or ten times the, the surface area uh, of the mirror itself. And over that region, you can have uh, order uh, degrees of cooling at uh, the surface. And, uh, you know, a few degrees can really make a huge difference between, you know, complete crop failure to an excellent harvest. So, for for example, for every day that uh, your crop spends over 30 degrees Celsius, you can expect a drop of uh, about 1% uh, in yield. Mm. And uh, studies generally have only analyzed data that's not too many degrees above 30. But this year, year, for example, in India and Pakistan, people experienced uh, you know, 40, 50 degree days over weeks. So these uh, extreme weather events and their impact on crop, uh, we just don't really have enough data to really put a number on it. But uh, most likely, it's not going to be linear. So maybe for every degree over 40, it's more like 10% drop or even more. So if you can somehow manage to reduce local field temperature by 5 degrees to 10 degrees, we can more or less uh, locally uh, just delay these devastating impacts. So is the idea that the mirrors are, tell me what this looks like. Are the mirrors over the land on like stilts or something? Or how would you, If I mean, if you had like a, a, a field of crops, mm-hmm. where are you putting your mirrors to get this effect? Yeah, so uh, those parameters are currently uh, being investigated in a more extended field experiment in uh, uh, Concord and the Plymouth, uh, New Hampshire. So we're looking at um, the impact on uh, you know soil temperature and moisture and the local air temperature as a function of a coverage pattern and the coverage of fractions. So we're looking at uh, between 5% coverage up to uh, 25-30% uh, aerial coverage. And just you know, based on how the Earth rotates, we know that the shadow scans along the east-west axis. Mm. So we uh, are looking at uh, configurations where we have uh, columns of mirrors lined along the north-south axis and uh, playing around with parameters of uh, inter-column spacing and also a bit uh, inter-row spacing at uh, this moment. You can have various designs, uh, you know, for field uh, applied mirrors. You can have each, uh, say, square or rectangular mirror supported by by a single 
rod uh, that's planted into the soil. So that's what we're using for its simplicity in our um, experimental um, measurement. But of course, you can also have you know a, an array of uh, rods between which you can tie even a flexible you know polymer-based uh, reflectors, which would uh, save how much glass mirror you need. And if uh, different materials become limiting, then you can use ones that are readily available. So, Isn't this something that, that PV people are currently investigating? I mean, agri-PV or whatever the heck they call it, agri-solar? Um, yes, uh, agrovoltaics. Yeah, agrovoltaics. They're busy investigating these same questions, aren't they? I mean, it's, it's somewhat similar. Yeah, there are similar uh, questions that are being investigated with the important uh, difference that uh, when you put PV panels, while you can provide local soil cooling and shading, you're actually increasing how much heat is produced inside the atmosphere because PV panels are extremely light absorbing and dark. Mm. So uh, it would uh, create a higher air temperature. So in regions that are already stressed by air temperature, if the temperature is the main stressor rather than moisture, then it would uh, you know, uh, become a net negative sooner. In the case of mirror, the shading impact is similar, but it also has uh, this air cooling impact. Right. And I'm trying to get a sense of scale. I don't know how to put this together in my mind. Like, How much coverage by mirrors are we talking before you have like um, a regional effect? Do you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) If I'm on the next farm over, do I ever get cooler or are these strictly local effects? Like if, if we had, you know, like half our square footage of our town covered in mirrors mm-hmm. would the entire rest of the town get cool <laughs> yeah there's actually uh, some data not from um, this field but from the field uh, of uh, scientists and engineers trying to address urban heat island effect uh, that provides uh, some uh, hints to the length scale correlation length scale and uh, if you have a neighborhood you know that's a significantly um, brighter than the neighboring one then the cooling effect extends to on the order of quarter mile, hundreds of meters around uh, this area. Mm. So you can create essentially what are local uh, oases. Right. So that's the other you know, interesting idea of uh, a mirror of this local solution, because it potentially can create these local environments that are still habitable, even if you know, the global average temperature has increased way beyond uh, what's uh, sustainable. Right. So it's almost like Essentially, oasis in, in a desert, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I think it's an open scientific and engineering question as to whether such uh, oases could be created and on uh, what length scale, and eventually, like what length scale of these um, uh, habitable islands do you need to enable local biodiversity to persist? So these are interesting multi-scale interdisciplinary questions that potentially we could answer. You know, once uh, the mirror framework becomes mainstream. And you envision mirrors out in fields or on top of buildings or over parking garages or, or all the above? Yeah, all of the above and more. So another uh, project that we have ongoing this summer is to look at uh, water saving potential when you uh, float mirrors uh, on top of water bodies, uh, say reservoirs. Mm-hmm. So uh, Deutsche Welle, uh, the DW German television, just released a video or documentary about heat, the recent uh, heat stress in Pakistan and India. And they mentioned that about 60% or 70% of the fresh water gets uh, lost during the distribution system because uh, they're flown in like a, you know canals or aqueduct that's open top. So just imagine if we had, you know, 
covered that right. with uh, mirrors to reduce uh, the evaporative loss and uh, conversion to latent uh, heat, we could potentially, uh, you know, significantly alleviate uh, urban water stress. And uh, our experiment from last summer already, you know, qualitatively demonstrated uh, that water saving impact. And this year, we have added uh, new string gauge sensors to monitor the weight of, uh, you know, the, the little bins and buckets that we use to simulate uh, a water body to uh, more quantitatively understand how much uh, water we can save in the process. So it's saving water and also cooling the planet at the same time. So it's like multiple benefits. Here's another question I'm sure you get from every audience you talk about this with. I'm trying to imagine um, a city or just any large swath of land that is close to completely covered in mirrors and it just seems like flying over that would be uh, <laughs> dazzling. I mean, I don't know if there would be heat reflecting up or light in people's eyes. Or is there any danger at all in covering the ground with mirrors in terms of like the airspace above it? So uh, so our experimental site in uh, Plymouth, uh, New Hampshire, is right beside the municipal airport. And uh, the administration really looked into the problem and concluded it's not really a, a problem. Why is that the case? So even in the highest coverage that we would realistically deploy, which is around to like, a, say, 20% of land surface area, we at most would increase uh, basically ground albedo by about uh, 0.1 or 10%. So uh, what the pilot would actually see is, okay, there's the sun in the sky, which is providing, say, 100% of the downwelling shortwave radiation. And then from this mirror field, from below, it would, uh, you know, add maybe 10, 20% of what's coming from the top up. Mm. And uh, because the mirrors are not going to be uh, precisely controlled in direction, you know, up to that 0.0001 degree precision, the different uh, beams of light from each individual devices will go in every which direction, more or less scrambled. So the, the, the pilot will not really see a coherent uh, image or reflection even from the, the mirror field. So the beams won't come together at, at any point. Now, and so there wouldn't be any heat either, I guess, then. Uh, yeah, so there's no concentration of uh, radiation energy in space. So uh, no birds will notice it. Uh, like, uh, so we have you know, watched the birds landing on these mirrors and also turkeys going through <laughs> the fields. They're not really uh, concerned because... Uh, to really get them to point in the same point demands a lot of engineering. And that's the focus of many different uh, companies, just to how to create such focal point reliably. So I've talked with several of them. <laughs> well, let's talk about the simplicity then, because that brings us to uh, the subject of materials, which is a huge piece of this. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things you say, one of the sort of premises of the project is we need to find a solution that can reject as much heat as we need to reject using materials we have available to us currently. So that sort of excludes any sort of fancy fabrication or engineering or rare materials or scarce materials. So talk about what mirrors are made of <laughs> and how much of that stuff there is. Okay, so that's a, a very natural flow of things. So first of all, we have to establish that uh, energy-wise, you know, mirrors can provide that leverage. We won't go into details uh, today, but uh, yes, we have established that uh, that's feasible. And next is, do we have enough material to construct all of them? So uh, the initial stages of the project, we had uh, focused on considering soda lime glass as the, the main material that goes into both the supporting structure and also the planar reflector, because the, the technologies already exist. And we, 
essentially buy from commercial suppliers currently for our field experiments. And the, the advantage of uh, glass in this application is that uh, they essentially don't degrade. And uh, the ones that we have also even survived minor hailstorms from last year. So we uh, are pretty confident and also snowstorms. So we're pretty confident that in most parts of the world, these things can last, you know, for decades, at least to centuries. The glass can last, but isn't the reflective surface somewhat more vulnerable? Oh, so uh, we uh, just, uh, you know, thinking about that problem, we have designed our prototype to be such that the reflector layer is sandwiched between two glass uh, mm. uh, layers, top and down, so that they are protected uh, by impenetrable glass from uh, chemical in- intrusion. Of course, there's still some work to be done, you know, to, for edge sealing, but that's a, a, a minor engineering material science development that's a totally uh, manageable uh, given enough resources and you're just talking about glass glass right plain old glass you're, we're not talking about any special you know bulletproof or industrial or whatever no no just... no, no, no no we're just uh, relying on you know soda lime glass which of course is not as clear or transparent as uh, say uh, high quality pure uh, fused silica but you know for the extra say two three percent transmission you would have to you know, increase your expenditure by orders of magnitude. That doesn't make sense. For something like this, we just use uh, what's mostly readily available and abundant, soda lime glass. And there's no conceivable shortage of, of lime glass. Oh, no. Actually, that's uh, something I need to point out. So our initial thinking was, uh, yes, we can. Uh, we do have enough reserves in soda lime glass to implement the full project out of glass and to basically uh, stop further global warming. We can do that. We end up, we do have both the energy and the material to do that. The energy consumption for a all-glass framework is a 3% of global energy consumption. So which is, you know, again, in the slow single digit, which is optimistically feasible. Annually? Annually. Uh, well, I mean, it's a, a power consumption. Uh, so it's 3% of uh, annual energy consumption. Mm-hmm. And that's just, that's, you're talking about just manufacturing mirrors manufacturing glass and mirrors and and transporting and implant implanting them because most of the energy is uh used in the melting process Mm. the rest is basically negligible because uh, the melting process is uh, the most energy intensive step so the bottleneck for a all glass solution is not in the reserves for making the material or in the energy needed to power its manufacturing it's actually in the speed at which we can make glass uh, so it turns out that uh, we uh, need, you know, slightly more than an order of magnitude higher annual glass output than currently exists in order to do this. So that's that's a huge problem. <laughs> right, right. So <laughs> that's why we started recently to think, okay, uh, we cannot really expect, you know, humans to really coordinate to such an extent that we just decide to, you know, ramp up a, a one particular industry by 10, 10 times. <laughs> what can we do something in the meantime to, you know, uh, still keep the project going and also keep it uh, readily scalable. That's when um, we started to consider uh, replacing the planar reflector part using uh, reflectors based on uh, PET, uh, polyethylene uh, terephthalate, uh, a thin film plastic. Uh, the advantage of this uh, material is that, uh, you can make uh, thin films that are very thin, but still tensile quite stable over, uh, you know, multi-feet length scales. And uh, they're stable even down to thicknesses of um, 
a few microns. Mm. So when there are a few uh, tenths of microns, they are already very, very uh, robust. So even though, you know, the energy intensity for making these polymers is roughly one or two orders of magnitude higher than making glass for the same volume, but because you can really make uh, the polymer films much, much thinner than you can make a glass, glass needs to be a few millimeters in thickness to be stable, whereas uh, these can be, you know, 100 times thinner and still be stable. So the energy penalty by a factor of 10 is uh, more than compensated for by using less material of the, the polymer. And uh, these polymers, they degrade mostly uh, via, you know, oxidation and uh, weathering due to uh, UV radiation and the photo-activated processes in the atmosphere. But if we can, you know, protect the, the underlayer using uh, the reflector layer, that uh, should largely attenuate the process. So there is uh, the possibility, you know, with enough research to make these films much more environmentally stable. And if they can last for more than five years, based on our calculations, the system would be able to deliver the uh, energy rejected or cooling return on investment ratio of 1,000 or 2,000 that's required, uh, you know, for the process to be viable. Yeah, and I would think, you know, if we globally decided we suddenly needed to be manufacturing enormous quantities of reflective surfaces, I would imagine there's lots of innovation to be had there just in terms of materials, in terms of scale and processes and everything. If it ever got going on that scale, I'm sure mm -hmm. there would be ways to bring down material costs. Yeah, um, I'm sure. Yeah. So we need to mostly just, uh, you know, alert people to this uh, uh, seemingly simple, but actually quite uh, versatile framework. And uh, we certainly have enough uh, PET for the process. So we've been uh, looking into, uh, you know, how much goes into landfills. And it turns out that what's currently going into landfills, which is uh, roughly 20 megaton per year of PET plastic, that amount is more than sufficient to implement the whole project. Mm. And uh, how much uh, aluminum cans that are going to landfills is uh, seven times more than what's uh, needed to implement the mirror framework. Right now, the only remaining puzzle is still this uh, glass part because it's still our understanding that the part that uh, interfaces with the soil needs to be made of glass for um, chemical durability and zero emission requirements. And uh, currently rejected or buried glass bottles, uh, wine bottles, champagne bottles, and container bottles is at 150 megaton per year. And that's only sufficient for about 10% uh, mm. of uh, mirror needs. So finding a uh, sustainable material for making this uh, uh, support for the reflectors is uh, a current challenge. So we're looking at other systems like uh, maybe pressure-treated bamboo that's more durable or some sort of uh, composite that combines uh, recycle, upgraded, reused materials. So that part is an ongoing research. But we're getting very close to being able to finance the mere framework in terms of energy material using what's currently discarded the resources in landfills. And you mentioned, too, uh, moving manufacturing over to being, because currently, I guess, glass manufacturing is mostly fossil-fueled. You've talked about um, trying to drive that with solar. Yeah, that would be uh, <laughs> quite ideal, and it's, it's certainly feasible. Uh, so it's already been demonstrated in 2018 by a research group at uh, Paul Schur Institute, PSI, um, close to Zurich in Switzerland. Uh, but the solar program there got shut down like a couple of years ago for reasons that I don't understand. Uh, 
but it's certainly possible. And if we can harness that, yeah. But but anyways, I don't think energy. I don't think energy is uh, anything of a concern. What's needed is really policy and understanding. Right. Like methane emissions, fugitive methane emissions from landfills, uh, more or less is sufficient. Just you know, if properly channeled uh, for the furnaces to make glass uh, for the mirrors, that alone is sufficient <laughs> for the process. So it's a combinations of if we can solve several you know problems at the same time. One thing that that I wanted to ask, sort of straightforwardly, is it seems like one of the implications of this research is that it is better to put up a mirror than to put up a PV panel. And it is better, as a matter of fact, to manufacture and put up mirrors than it is to manufacture and put up renewable energy. And you could even say that if we rejected enough heat with mirrors, um, CO2 would not be nearly as urgent a problem and transitioning from fossil fuels to renewables would not be nearly as urgent of a problem. Is that all fair? Uh, no, that's not correct. I think the uh, the conceptual distinction to make is that uh, energy provisioning and global warming are two separate challenges. Hmm. Uh, energy provisioning is try to make the 18 terawatts that we're currently using carbon neutral. Global warming management is how to get rid of the 1,000 terawatt of heat. So they're on completely different uh, scales of challenge. Uh, in a sense, the renewable energy challenge is even easier, I guess, because it's also <laughs> like at the more advanced stage of discussion compared to the global warming excess heat management problem. Right. So it's, uh, again, here there's you know a natural tendency to link the two problems because energy provisioning created the problem. Therefore, we have to solve the global warming problem by addressing energy provisioning, but that's not uh, conceptually correct. Well, I guess what I'm wondering is if we have this knob, this relatively cheap knob that we can turn to turn down heat, mm-hmm. why do we care if our energy provisioning is carbon intensive? Well, I mean, there is, uh, you know, some limit eventually of uh, physiological intolerance to CO2 that we know. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) yes, so yes, it's a few decades down the line. But, uh, you you know, we we know that the fossil fuel industry has been successful in the past decades. So who is to say that they won't continue to be successful if we don't, uh, you know, counter them, uh, you know, with as much uh, determination as we have uh, shown, at least in the activist and uh, academic fields. So we certainly need to decarbonize that. There's no question about that. So these are two separate problems. Got it. And so final, as a final question, and thank you for uh, sharing so much of your time. I I guess I I would like to know, I mean, all this right now is really early. I mean, most of it is just sort of noodling and thinking about it and conceiving and trying to model it and, and work out the math. How do you envision or do you envision it starting to translate into reality and then i guess secondarily how big would it have to i mean how much surface area are we talking about before we start feeling global temperature effects from it in other words or like how big of a head of esteem does it have to get before we start getting global payback from it uh, to more or less you know keep the climate at current levels we need to implement uh, these reflectors over maybe 15% of uh, currently used agricultural land. That's a lot. And it doesn't have to be uh, just land that's currently cultivated. Yes, it's a lot. 
However, if we remember <laughs> that uh, when you put them into the land, you most likely will actually in increase per area yield. Right. Then it uh, feels more manageable. And because uh, these agricultural fields are already, you know, a, a snatched surface that's highly engineered, there is a little concern for uh, biodiversity uh, impact. And if you can, you know, provide also lo local cooling shade and more moisture, it might actually foster some local uh, rebound of insect population and the soil microbes. And it's also entirely possible that uh, at high enough coverage, one could expand arable land into currently area that, that's currently too hostile mm. for uh, agricultural work. Like de-desertification? Wait, <laughs> there's, there's got to be a better way to say that. Well, yes, it would contribute because water is usually the limiting resource. So in uh, some uh, you know borderline regions where if you just had a few, uh, on average, uh, uh, half a millimeter per day of a uh, uh, net uh, water accumulation, which could be afforded by the, the murres, then you could uh, convert some of these areas into new uh, habitable zones. And there's evidence for that uh, in mega projects uh, taking place in China, both under the concentrating solar power plants and also their large uh, scale PV fields that uh, previously barren land is now producing grass and uh, hmm. becoming grassland that uh, uh, sheep herders are uh, you know, leveraging and duck herders are leveraging to produce uh, you know, protein for the local population. So. What about the economics? Uh, I, I should uh, we we should mention that Mir is a is a nonprofit and and run by volunteers and it's all open source and this is all you know nobody's nobody's going to make money from all this. But at the same time, it's hard to imagine something spreading over the entire globe unless it makes money. So, is the effect on if I'm a farmer is the effect on my crop yield sufficient to pay for the mirror do you know what i mean like is it would it be an economic transaction for me or is there an element of do you know like government needed or 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 is it philanthropic in the end or or is there an economy to be made here uh so we have not done the economics uh, assessment uh for that problem but it's uh, something that we have thought about and will perform in the future mainly because uh we have not uh, fully obtained the full impact uh of the parameter space of uh moisture and temperature and air temperature perturbations. Uh, it's only when we have those figures can we uh, then look at uh, you know, growth functions of different crops and their light requirement, moisture requirement, to start performing that analysis. So uh, our ongoing experiment this year and next year in the field to get those very basic um, radiation perturbation, temperature moisture data uh, is quite necessary uh, to enable that assessment. But we do have, you know, um, precedence that's already in the field. Many people use, or farmers, use uh, uh, shades uh, or like a sort of greenhouse, but really uh, structures covered by partially transparent white plastic in order to uh, reduce how much light arrived at our crops. Because in some most lower latitudes, you know, below 40, uh, solar noon is basically too intense for most plants to survive, really, especially uh, uh, single canopy crop field. So naturally, there's a need to reduce how much light uh, comes down. And uh, farmers have been willing, you know, to buy these uh, plastic-based uh, sheeting to cover their crops. And we don't expect uh, the mirrored version to be much more significantly more uh, expensive. So, for example, if you look at uh, PET sheeting on Alibaba uh, before and after uh, metallization, metallization is the process of putting on thin layer of metal to make it uh, like a mirror. 
the prices differ by maybe 10, 20 percent because most of the the cost comes from the polymer production and the film manufacturing by, uh, you know, process of uh, thermal and blowing them and then cutting them and rolling them. So it seems like uh, just at a qualitative level, changing the current partially transparent white sheeting to a reflective uh, film, maybe with different, you know, ways uh, to put them up, it shouldn't be a huge change in what they, some farmers are already spending to keep their land arable. So you can imagine a market, and I guess also it's obvious, but worth pointing out that heat solutions, <laughs> solutions to heat uh, are going to be much more in demand in coming years uh, than they are now. So I imagine the problem of shading crops will become more acute as time goes on as well. Correct. And people will be looking looking for solutions. Yeah, and also not only heat protection for crops, but also for humans. And uh, one of our projects uh, is a humanitarian project trying to deliver these uh, uh, affordable mirrored sheetings or uh, mirrored uh, tiles for uh, implementing on roofs to help people in um, Pakistan and India and uh, you know parts of Africa you know, so that uh, they can actually survive during these extreme heat events. Right. I would imagine it would do an enormous amount to just keep a single structure cool. I mean, that could be, that's like life or death difference. Yes. I mean, a couple of degrees. Sometimes it just said one extra degree <laughs> that uh, really the last straw that crushed the camel. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for coming on and talking about this. It's uh, fascinating. So what's the next uh, next step? You guys are doing some early research. Is there a uh, next big milestone? Uh, next milestones basically include getting um, more concrete and precise data in the field and also uh, demonstrating or testing cooling in urban uh, heat island uh, settings and uh, more or less just an educational effort because even among people working in this uh, domain of climate mitigation, mm -hmm. uh, only a very minor minority are really scientifically trained and engineering trained you know, in a multi-discipline fashion that they are able to think uh, from this more top-down perspective. So sometimes people are really excited about their own projects. For example, um, carbon capture, that they know all details about how the sorbent works, the kinetics mm -hmm. of those processes, but they have not had the chance to really zoom out and uh, see, whoops, uh, even if everything were to uh, work 100% as I expect, it's still not enough to really tackle uh, the Earth's energy imbalance. Uh, so uh, really uh, teaching people about uh, what's uh, the core problem we're, we try, we're trying to confront uh, is uh, one of the future uh, focus over the, the next year. So we'll be updating our website with these educational texts. So uh, a lot of time is actually spent trying to translate um, you know, university level basic science writing into uh, eighth grade uh, compatible <laughs> writing material and sometimes... Uh, it's uh, you know creating more time sink than uh, uh, we like to spend. <laughs> I know that struggle. All right, well, thanks so much. Uh, thanks for taking the time, and uh, I'll be uh, I'll be following the project. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf 
so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.